At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to episode number 63 of the Marine Layer podcast. We welcome on Mike Salk, the host of Brock and Salk on Seattle Sports Talk a little bit about the Mariners' offseason, his career, and a couple other things as well. We also have our Mariners' infield grades for this 2023 season. Your reminder before we start the show, if you're listening to our audio side of this episode, check us out on YouTube too. We've got a video side to the podcast. It's over on YouTube. You can like, comment, subscribe, and turn the notification bells on when you head over there. If you're watching us on YouTube... Listen to us, too, when you're at the gym, in your car, on a walk, wherever you might be. If you do that, you can download our episodes, follow us, leave us a five-star review. The downloads and the reviews really do help us out a lot. So just take a few extra seconds and do that. And then on social media, where we're always active, we're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube Shorts. You can follow us there, at Marine Layer Pod. Let's get it rolling. We welcome you to this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast, part of the Just Baseball Podcast Network, recording here on Monday, October 9th. Not much has happened in Mariner land over the last week since the Mariner season ended, but there is one takeaway, Lyle, that we can have in the baseball world since then. These playoffs have kind of sucked or really sucked. After this Braves-Phillies game two, I'll move it to kind of sucked. If you had asked me a couple hours ago, I would have said really sucked. But now now my grades moved up the totem pole a little bit because the Braves just came back from four runs down to win five to four. Actually, that game just concluded a few minutes before we started recording this. Besides that, though, yeah, it's been bad. These series have been uncompetitive. I know the Twins took a game in Houston. I still have a hard time believing they're going to really dethrone the Astros. And it's just it's been a lot of uncompetitive series. Like, we need more fight. We need more teams to punch back. We want some four or five game series in here, guys. At the very least, can we get a competitive wild card series? Isn't it that we've only gotten one wild card series in the two year sample size of this playoff field that has gone to three games? So that would be eight series out of the eight series that have played seven of them in the wild card round have been sweeps, and it was all sweeps this year, which makes for depressing television. It does. Thank you, Blue Jays, though. It was not depressing last year. This year, however, it's depressing. And I guess one last thing that has come up, Lyle, it has seemed now that the buys have come through and gone, and now every team's playing in, every team's back playing in the playoff field that's still alive, all of a sudden, apparently having a buy is a disadvantage. I I didn't know that until today, and I'm sitting here trying to think, it's like, huh, 
So Zach Wheeler pitching well means Major League Baseball should get rid of the bye. Hmm. You know, it's funny. When you look at the first year this was implemented last year when the Astros won the World Series, you look back to that wild card series they played, and they had a lot of momentum in that one. Honestly, it sparked their whole run, didn't? Oh, wait. Sorry. They, they didn't play in a wild card series, did they? No, they didn't. They had a first round bye and won the whole thing. They nearly won every single game they played. People making this argument sound ridiculous. I'm sorry that the Braves lost their first game. I'm sorry that the Dodgers got blown out in their first game. Aren't the underdogs supposed to have some advantage? What is the point of the postseason? Actually, what am I even saying? I said, aren't the underdogs supposed to have an advantage? They don't have an advantage. The, the higher seeds have the advantage because they get to rest. And I'm sorry, I'm not buying this whole time off kills your momentum thing. Momentum is fake, number one. And number two, you are more rested in your rotation and bullpen. That is an advantage. So I'm sorry, but I, I can't hear this argument. If you go ask any clubhouse, it's like, what would you rather rest for a week before playing in the playoffs after the season? Or would you rather keep playing? Everyone's going to say rest. So just a little background. There was more sediment on Twitter past couple of days well the Dodgers lost game one the Braves lost game one it's like oh having a buy is actually a disadvantage what is Major League Baseball doing they need to, if the Braves lose this week to the Phillies in a series they should do away with the buy and I'm like what are we what how are we how does this work a team loses in the playoffs uh yeah we need to get rid of the the one thing we think is is causing them to lose in the playoffs that's like me saying oh yeah the mariners lost in in five, in three games in a three game sweep to the astros last year let's make the divisional series seven games oh wait nobody's saying that get the fuck out of here dude listen so it it was ken rosenthal who wrote this and Let's be clear. Like, we think Ken Rosenthal is absolutely fantastic at his job. He is one of the best reporters in the entire field, if not the best reporter. And he makes a lot of really sound points. He is baseball smart. He's well-spoken. But we can disagree with somebody from time to time. And in here, we disagree with what he said. And I think a lot of other baseball fans disagree with it, too. This whole get away with the buys thing does not make any sense. And I don't think they're going to, funny enough, or not even so funny enough, just period. But the the fact it was even thrown out there, I just scratched my head a little bit because it, it doesn't make any sense. Let's get to our Mariners infield grades this season. Should be an adventurous trip around the base paths. We're not going to be taking any buys while we go through this. We will be touching on everybody. Okay, up first, catcher, Cal Raleigh. What's his grade, Lyle? He gets an A. And he could have gotten an A-plus if his offense had just been a tad bit better this year. And I know that sounds funny for a guy that hit 30 home runs. But some of his numbers did decline on the offensive side of the ball this year. His WRC-plus went down a little bit. Again, we're nitpicking here. His OPS went down a little bit. But that's the only thing you could possibly knock the guy for. Cal Raleigh was healthy. He took a ton of hits this year. He caught a ton of games. He hit 30 bombs. He was top five among all catchers by WRC plus he was top three among F catchers in F war I'm, I'm rattling off all these numbers here to say Cal Raleigh is one of the best catchers in the game of baseball and nothing less nothing less and when you're one of the best players at your position in baseball and have a year that says so you get an A Cal Raleigh gets an A in my book if we're talking about expected grades you, we're, we're giving out actual grades here and his actual grade for me is an A minus 
And you mentioned, well, his offense actually went down this year, so that's why I gave him, uh, sorry, that's why I gave him an A instead of an A+. I also gave him an A. I just misspoke. But if we're looking at expected grades, Lyle, his expected offense actually went up this year. His expected batting average, his expected slugging percentage, his ex-WOBA also went up. His average exit velocity also went up. Lyle, he's chasing for that expected A+, but he only gets an A from me. Talk about durability. 145 games as a backstop is pretty fucking bonkers. For a guy, he did take some some DH days, but that's pretty ridiculous if we think about that for Cal, while also manning not one, not one, but two different swings. Contextualize that. Two different swings, 30 bombs for Cal Raleigh. What a magnificent season for him. And just to put some context, we're here trashing on his offense, kind of, not really, but a 111 WRC WRC plus. You realize only half the qualified catchers in baseball are actually above average hitters. Like, that's what you need to put context there. It's like, oh, only 30 home runs in a 111 WRC plus. Well, it turns out that's like 85th percentile catcher hitting right there, if not higher. When you look at his war, which again, he finished third, he finished behind William Contreras of the Brewers, who had a phenomenal year, and Adley Rushman. So all your other favorite catchers out there were behind Cal Raleigh. Sean Murphy, by war, was not better than Cal Raleigh. Wilson Contreras was not better than Cal Raleigh. Any other catchers you might want to throw out there that had great years, they were not better than Cal Raleigh. So Cal Raleigh is every bit the way a top three to five catcher in this sport at this point. Will Smith, there's another, did not have a better year than Cal Raleigh. He absolutely lit it up this year. And it's funny, we talk about his offense going down a little bit, but there are parts of his game that absolutely took steps forward. And we can get to his defense here in a minute, but if we're just staying on the offensive profile, strikeouts went down, walks went slightly up. That's another step. He had, like, again, he gets an A for every reason that we're outlining. He had a phenomenal year. You're forgetting the most important stat, Lyle. He hit 232. We said, can Cal Raleigh hit 230 at the beginning of the season? And you bet your ass he did hit 230. He listened to us. He wanted to get above that 230 benchmark, and he certainly made it. There are, like, I guess we can nitpick here with his offensive stats, but whether, you know, whether you're that concerned or, or not, which you probably should be concerned with his offense, he's probably going to be a guy who strikes out a bunch in his career because he hits for a bunch of power. And usually when you hit for a bunch of power, more likely than not, you're going to strike out a decent amount. And he's not even the worst at king on his own team, as we know, and we've highlighted on here. But his defense that you're about to mention, Lyle, the two very important things he does, he frames really well, which as long as a manual umpire is back there is so important. ABS might take away from that a little bit, at least the challenge system. He won't be able to steal as many strikes. And his caught stealing above average, which I think in the middle of the year, it was like he was like league average, but down the stretch here, I mean, my God, he was saving runs off the board by what he was doing, throwing out guys at second base. People stopped running on him by the end of the year and the people that tried him didn't work. You saw him hosing runners left and right. It's hard to find catchers that do it on both sides of the ball to be that good offensively and that good defensively. That's what he was. And you'll take the strikeouts when you have everything else. It's hard to nitpick. It really is. And we're appreciative of Cal Raleigh, a four over four and a half win season as a catcher. 
go back to the start of last year and say Cal Raleigh in year two, full year two in the big leagues is going to have a four and a half win season. You sign up for that every single day. How about Ty France, Lyle? Let's get to him in just a second here, because before we do, let's talk a, a, let's talk a quick word about our friends over at Pagacha's Pub 85. So one of the restaurants that we love, Pagacha's Pub 85, it's here in Kirkland. It's just off of 405, east of 405. It has some great parking. It's got some great pizza, awesome food, and it's got some great drinks. And if you need more than that, which that's already enough in itself, but you can watch all the sports you want in there because there's 22 TVs. So if you want to go watch the playoffs, some baseball, you got you want to go watch NFL football on Sundays, you want to go watch college football at some point over the course of the weekend on a Saturday, head over there to Bogotá's Pub 85. And if you do so and you decide you want to head over there early, especially during the weekday, they have some happy hours. Monday through Friday, 2 to 6 p.m., they've got $3 domestic beers, $4 Manny's Blue Moons, $4 Mac and Jacks, $4 Wells, $4 house wines. All of that is over at, P- at Pagacha's Pub 85 in Kirkland. Go check it out. This fall, stream your favorites and discover more with Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus together. Watch the highly anticipated new season of Loki and see the ghosts materialize in Haunted Mansion on Disney Plus. Catch more frights with the Boogeyman and American Horror Story Delicate on Hulu. And on ESPN Plus, get into the action with college football and NFL. All of these and more streaming now. Get the Disney Bundle with plans starting at $9.99 a month. Plans with ESPN Plus starting at $14.99 a month. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Okay, Ty France. I gave him a D plus. And we had to give out some hard grades on this one. And I know by his WRC plus, he was technically above league average. He was at 104. But 104 in terms of your WRC plus, it's not good enough from a first baseman, especially a first baseman that hit 12 home runs for the year. Ty France really took a step back with his bat this season. And when you look at his numbers among first basemen across the league, in much of it, he was in the bottom third. So when you compare to the when you compare him to his counterparts across baseball, he just wasn't cutting it. The season he had is just plain and simple, not good enough for what the Mariners need from him. It was replaceable is the terminology I used. He got a D plus from me as well. If you look at his ranks among first basemen, he was 23rd in isolated power out of 24, by the way, 12th in on-base percentage, 20th in weighted on-base average, 13th in expected weighted on-base average, 18th in WRC+. 20th and F4. For a first baseman, it's just not good enough. And it's disappointing. We look at Ty France's stretch as a Mariner at the plate. In 2021, he had a 129 WRC+, was worth over three Fangraphs wins above replacement. 2022, a 125 WRC+, and two and a half Fangraphs wins above replacement. This season, he took a nosedive down to a 105 and half a win above replacement. For a first baseman, who, by the way, his defense is not loved by Fangraphs, 36 Fangraphs by Baseball Savant, 36th percentile and outs above average. He is poor on the base paths, fifth uh, base running run value. He is fifth. That's a Baseball Savant stat right there. He's also just seventh percentile in sprint speed as well. There's not a whole lot of positives out here besides the fact he is in the top half of the league and not swinging and missing and striking out. That's it. 
everything else is down across the board and having a slow first baseman who doesn't hit for power is like the worst combination possible. You mean he's in the fifth percentile, right? In terms of his base running value. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I meant. There's a lot of, a lot of numbers jumping up. I, I might've misheard you. I thought you said fifth and I was like, fifth among first basemen. That can't be right. Fifth Uh, percentile. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Look, first basemen usually are not fast, but we know Ty France does not run well. What his roster spot becomes here in 2024 is TBD. He may very well be back on the roster. I guess there's a chance he could get traded. The fact he's going to driveline is a very good sign in hopes that he could turn last season in the rearview mirror and get back to what he was doing in 21 and 22 next year. But as we sit here and give him his grade, I think this is a fair grade. I think most people would say that it wasn't good enough from Ty Francis here. And that's what we're sitting here saying. The numbers don't back it up. Even if you want to throw all the saber metrics out the door, which we love to use 12 home runs from a first baseman, 12 home runs. And he was fully healthy. He just was not hitting the ball over the fence. And at a premier offensive position, you kind of need the guy to do that. And if he's not going to do it, by the way, if he's going to hit 15 to 20, which sometimes is what Ty France does, then his WRC plus numbers and his advanced stats have to be better. His WRC plus probably has to be in the 120s, but that wasn't the case either. And he also just needs to slug more, man. Okay, in the sense of him having 15 to 20 home runs, this is actually what I meant to say. He needs to get on base more. And I can't believe I'm about to say this. He needs to hit for a better average. He needs to get produce more at the plate if he's not going to hit as many home runs he did that the last two seasons but this season he he just didn't he was also by the way horrible base runner I I mentioned base running value but if you go look at the fan graphs one as well fan graphs base running runs he was four times as worse as his next closest season on the base pass four times so like either Ty France goes to driveline and starts crushing fastballs again, which is a big part of his success each of the last two seasons, and becomes what should be his one of his peak seasons at the plate at age 30, either he does that or the Mariners do seriously need to consider what their other options at first base are next year. Because if Ty France does what he does, did this past season at the plate next season, not only is it a failure on him, but it's an organizational failure as well to not see that and to not act on it. If they don't trade for a first baseman this winter, they'll roll out with Ty France to start 2024. They'll see what his changes look like after going to driveline. But if we get into the summer here, if we get around the all-star break or the trade deadline and Ty France isn't cutting it again, they may look to go get a first baseman at the deadline next year, or they may be calling Tyler Locklear's name, depending on it, on how he's doing in the minors. So I think the first half of 2024 is going to be pretty pivotal for Ty France. Obviously, this year was not the year he wanted to have. Let's hope he can flush it for next year. Moving on here to second base, Josh Rojas didn't have the largest sample size in Seattle, but for the time he was here, TJ, what grade did you give him? I gave him a B minus slash incomplete. So I say incomplete because he was only here two months. It's hard to get a true grade based on that sample. Although if you look at what he did while he was a Mariner, an OPS a little over 720, 272, 321, 400, a 104 WRC plus, slightly above league average as a hitter, but uh, he did gain nearly a win. Uh, I think it was 
0.7 Fangraphs wins above replacement, or that was baseball reference actually, wins above replacement as a Mariner. And if you contrast that to what Colton Wong produced as a Mariner this season, just him being here for two months was a one and a half win upgrade over Colton Wong. That's carrying a lot of weight in his grade right here. And we saw what he could do at his peak when he's hot in August. He had a 119 WRC plus opposed to down the stretch he had an 86 WRC plus, but there's a lot of things he does. Well, he, he ranks as a plus base runner. He ranked as a plus base runner this season. And he also ranked very well on defense, which if you told us at the beginning of the year, Colton Wong would be playing good defense, be a good base runner and have a 105 WRC plus you'd say, well, that's good enough. The Mariners probably make the playoffs if that's the case, but that's what Josh Rojas had to come in and supplement and Colton Wong did not do. So that's where I'm at with, with Josh Rojas. We're three for three on our grades. I gave Rojas a B minus. I think he was very productive in the time he was here. We also need to see more from him. Now to his credit, the time he was here, if you prorate his war over the course of about a full 162, he's right around a three win player. Honestly, maybe a little bit above that. So that is a guy you can rely on. And it's funny. Most people wouldn't think this off the top of their head, but Josh Rojas slugged 400 in his time here. That's pretty good. I'm not saying it's gargantuan, but that's pretty good, especially from the second base production they've had the last few years. I think you'll take that combined with the good defense, the base running, the fact that he simply can actually put bat to ball like so many of the second basemen have not. Yeah, I I think this is a guy that he's not going to be the best bat in your lineup, but he's certainly a guy that toward that nine spot can help and can flip the lineup around. He's not Marcus Simeon, and yeah, we do wish Marcus Simeon was Mariner, but I think this version we saw of Josh Rojas for two months, if he were to, like you said, extrapolate that over a full season, for what we've seen at second base, I think a lot of people would take that. Again, I think that would be, the math works out, I think it would be a little bit over two wins, but if you're saying the Mariners would have had a two-win player at second base this season, that would have been a three-win improvement over what they had, what they planned for at the beginning of the season. So... Yeah, he looked like Joe Morgan compared to Colton Wong. No offense, but... <laughs> yeah, we'll get to our Colton Wong grade, by the way, at the end of the segment. So uh, if anyone was was really wondering if we were going to grade him, no, we we didn't forget. We, we didn't forget. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll give him his time. Overall, though, I there's not many better options out there for them to truly upgrade at second base, which is why we both, I think, agree that Josh Rojas is going to be your second baseman this year, next year. The only reason why he wouldn't be is if you go sw- swing a trade for one of those Orioles guys and JP sticks at shortstop, one of those those young Orioles infielders that you give away one of your one uh, one of your young pitchers for. The last thing I'll say on Rojas is an area I'd like to see him improve a little bit next year is bumping up that walk rate a little bit because most of his career he's actually walked at a pretty good rate. In fact, his first few seasons in the big leagues he was walking over ten percent of the time. It was about. 7.7% as a whole this year, but his time in Seattle it was under 7%, which is a little below league average. So Josh Rojas has walked a lot of his career. And if he bumps that on base up next year, because his on base was about 320 and he can walk a little bit more, he actually gets even more valuable. So he can be even better than he was this year. That's just an area I'd like to see him get a little bit better next year. And do we think they're going to platoon him next year? Depends on what Ryan Bliss does. Actually, it depends on what Jose Caballero does, too, because people might not like it, but he did hit lefties this year, so we'll see. Is that something you'd be okay with? 
TBD. If Ryan Bliss really like proves to be a big leader, because he started to hit toward the end of the year in AAA, and we know how he hit in AA, which was exceptionally well. Yeah, I'd be all right with it. And again, we'll have to see how Cabby does. I think I'm at the uh, I'll think about it stage because we got a lot of off season left to digest all these moves. How about this? If there is one platoon, one, I'll be okay with it. I am not with okay you. with four. If they do one platoon at second base, I'm okay with it. I'm with you. Way to way to finish that off. I like that. Before we get to the shortstop, JP Crawford, let's hear about better help. Is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Regardless, if you have a clinical mental health issue like depression or anxiety, or you're just a human who lives in this world going through a hard time, therapy can give you the tools to approach your life in a very different way. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. And it's an important mission because finding a therapist can be really hard, especially when you're limited to options in your area. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you with a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist of your choice. There's a link in our description. It's betterhelp.com slash marine layer pod. That's better H-E-L-P.com slash marine layer pod. Clicking that link helps support this podcast, but also gets you 10% off your first month of BetterHelp so you can connect with a therapist and see if it helps you. So if you're struggling, consider online therapy with BetterHelp. Click the link in our description or visit betterhelp.com slash pod. Now to the shortstop, Lyle. What grade are you giving J.P. Crawford for the 2023 season? Star pupil of the class, J.P. Crawford gets an A. We gave Cal Raleigh an A too, but still, J.P. gets an A. Did you know J.P. Crawford was 13th in baseball in WRC Plus? He was 6th in the American League. 6th. And by the way, that's better than Julio. 6th in the American League. J.P. Crawford. Now, who was saying that at the start of the year? That's an A. His offense was absolutely marvelous this year. And if you look across the board in his shortstop ranks, the only shortstop who was definitively better than him in every category was Corey Seager, who's going to finish second in MVP. That's the kind of season J.P. Crawford put up as a shortstop. Like catcher, shortstops don't always hit, but J.P. Crawford turned himself into not just a good player, but a borderline elite offensive player in one season. We're talking about a shortstop who nearly cranked 20 home runs, walked nearly 15% of the time, a 134 WRC+, plus, nearly five band graphs wins above replacement. Among shortstops, he ranked first in walk rate, second in on-base percentage, eighth in slugging, second in weighted on-base average, second in WRC+, plus, and tied for fourth in wins above replacement. And oh, by the way, we'll get to this, but if his defense was better, he'd probably be clearly second in wins above replacement behind Corey Seager. Oh, if his defense was the way it was in 2021, we're talking about a world where he'd be top five in baseball in war. We're talking about a world where his F4 might be ahead of Shohei's this year because Shohei's F4 for the year was 6.6. JP's was about five. If he was playing gold glove defense, we're talking about a potential seven war player. So let's just get into it now because we're talking about his glove. That's why his grade is not an A+. His glove was not good, again. And I know there's people out there that'll say, oh, no, he played good defense this year and he was solid. 
I don't know what you're really basing that off because none of the defensive metrics favor him. If this was a world where, oh, he ranked well in defensive run save, but not outs above average, or he didn't rank well in outs above average, but his UZR was good. All right, there'd be an argument for it. None of the metrics really favor him. In fact, they don't favor him at all. His outs above average was in the fifth percentile at negative eight. Like he can still improve on that defensive side of the ball. He can still get better in not just better, but we know he can play great defense. He just hasn't done it the last couple of years. But let's not harp on that too much because that's the only thing knocking him down. Again, he's an A for every other reason. Defensive run save doesn't have him terribly. It's minus four with the amount of innings he played. That's slightly below average. If he was, if Fangraphs thought he was the worst thing on planet Earth at shortstop, he would be, I think, around minus 20. That's usually where the worst players in baseball are. He's not quite at that mark. But outs above average hates him. Fifth percentile, minus eight outs above average is not great. And I suggest watch JP go to his right. That's that's where most of the issues stem from JP Crawford's defense. My question is, does driveline uh, do a defense class? Because if so, you know, his offense took a marvelous step because of that. And I think his defense could use that too. I'm not quite sure if they're if he's like at the point of his career where they'd move him off shortstop. I don't know. It'd be interesting. This is why we talked about the whole shortstop thing this winter. And again, I didn't lose sleep over the fact that they didn't overpay for one of those guys. That being said, we did talk about the idea of moving him to second base because it seemed like his range was starting to deteriorate. And that's a big thing that outs above average takes into account is guys range. And JP the last two years is not graded well there. So maybe at some point they'll move him off and put him over at second base. Uh, if he's still around when Felony and Celestin gets up, maybe that's the time he moves over. But that's a long, long, Might long be a while. way. I was going to say that is a long way away. So that's just a hypothetical. Is there anything else we want to see offensively from him? I'm trying to, th- I was thinking about it and I'm like, I, I don't know if there's really anything else after what we saw that he has to do besides sustain it. I agree. This is the guy they thought he could be when he was a top five prospect. Can I just read you the five guys in the American League that ranked ahead of him, by the way, in WRC Plus? Because it is Shohei, who's going to win the MVP. Corey Seager, who's going to come in second. Yandy Diaz of the Rays, who had a phenomenal year. Kyle Tucker, who's going to finish top five in the MVP voting. And Isak Paredes of the Rays, who also had an amazing year. Those are the only five. Three of them, including Shohei, Corey Seager, Kyle Tucker, ahead of J.P. Crawford. Like, what a year. Yeah, pinch us. The fact that J.P. Crawford landed in that group in terms of offense. We're like, can can he just put up a 115? I mean, that's all we're asking, 115. No, no, it was uh, it was significantly better than that. Okay, uh, A. Eugenio Suarez at third base, Lyle. What's his grade? This was the toughest guy for me to try to give a grade to. So I gave him a B minus, and here's why. He still put up above three war for the year. That is, by all accounts, a good season. You put up a number like that, it's not elite, it's a good year. And what is that because of? Well, it's because of his defense. He was phenomenal on defense this year. His offense, not so much. And the problem with him is when you need one of your thumpers in the lineup, one of your true impact bats to be that, and he isn't, it's really hard on the team. And I think that played a factor into why they're not in the postseason right now. So it was a B minus for me. Especially after coming off a season with a 130 WRC plus and the Mariners enter this season thinking 
Gino is going to be, could be your third best hitter, third or fourth at least. It would be some combination of Julio, Teoscar, Ty France, and Eugenio. The problem is three quarters of that group egregiously underperformed, and Gino was definitely part of that. I was one notch below you. This is where we will not agree. I give Gino a C plus because third basemen need to hit. Out of 21 third basemen, he was 16th in WRC+. plus. He was 18th in slugging for a guy who's supposed to be one of the best power hitters in baseball. 18th in slugging percentage. That That's just, he's taking he everything that made his game different than everyone else and which made him a successful big league player was not there in his hitting profile this season. He had the strikeout rate of a big thumper, but none of the production. You can't slug 391 if you're Geno. The Mariners just need so much more from him than that. You need your third baseman to hit. He wasn't hitting enough. And it's funny, he's not a guy that chases a whole lot. The thing with him is he just swings and misses. And that's what continued to happen this year. And more than ever, he wasn't barreling up the baseball, which is what led to a down offensive season. Do I think he's the third baseman next year? Yeah, I do. He's only got a year left on his contract, and he absolutely played well enough to be back there next year, especially when you put up three wins. But they do need more offense from him. We speculated who could it be that Jerry was alluding to that may spend time at, at driveline this winter. I think we both agree. Gino goes and spends some time at driveline. Probably help him. Yeah, probably would. And I, I got to say, if the power's declining for Gino, he's got to find a way to strike out less. He's got it because those two don't mix. 31% strikeout rate with the slugging percentage under 400 makes it pretty difficult. Now, I will note, he did get a little unlucky. We've hi- we highlighted the stat, I think, like in the middle of the season. It didn't change a whole lot. His expected slugging against fastballs this season ended at 599, but obviously didn't translate a whole lot into his actual production on the field, which was a little unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Maybe next year the luck turns back in his favor. There was certainly some bad luck in Gino's profile this year, but ultimately we're not giving out expected grades, right? We're giving out actual grades, and for yeah. that reason, you gave him a C plus. I gave him a B minus, and you can only hope he turns it around next year. I, I will leave this off with my last note. I, so you said you almost guarantee that Gino's on the roster next year. I, I I'm pretty sure Gino's on the roster next year. I have no. Knowing Jerry, it doesn't seem like there'd be any real reason they would move off of him, knowing how he thinks and how he constructs his roster. However, if there was an upgrade out there, I just wouldn't totally be shocked. I wouldn't totally be shocked. But, you know, here nor there, we have a while to go. I didn't guarantee it, did I? I said I think he'll be on the roster. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're both in the think not for sure. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, these last few guys, we're going to try and rip through them here fairly quickly, but we'll start with Mike Ford. What's your grade? Mike Ford, for me, gets a B- minus because he did everything he was supposed to do coming up. You call up a AAA guy, for the most part, had cups of tea around the big league so far, and he comes up to the Mariners and has his best stretch in the big leagues that he's had over the longest period of time he's been in the big leagues as well. You wanted a guy to come up and slug? Well, that's what he did. 84 games, 124 WRC+, plus, including his first full month when he slugged, uh, when he had a 149 WRC+. Plus. That, like, that's what you want when you call up a guy. It's like, all right, just swing for the fences. Well, it worked, right? So he filled the role you wanted and was able to at least supplement that DH role. I gave him a B-minus also. 
His numbers were good. I figured when he got up in early June, it'd probably be a cup of coffee for him. That's been the story of his career the last few years. And then he'd probably be back in the minor leagues or with another team. That wasn't the case. He was a mainstay the rest of the year, and he hit. He had some big moments. That home run off Felix Batista is the one is the one that's drilled into my mind. He helped this team this year. It wasn't perfect, but that's why I gave him a B minus. He definitely helped the team. So I think we're in agreement there on Mike Ford. We we saw like he had some struggles throughout the season. Did you know he actually didn't have a month with less than 100 WRC plus? That's pretty good. Yeah, it's really good. Okay, Jose Caballero. Jose Caballero gets a B minus from me again for the role he was supposed to fill. It was good enough. He was replacement level at the plate or league average at the plate. There's a difference between league average and replacement level, but was rated as a plus fielder and a plus runner and gotten the head of the other team. That seems like three positives for a, a ideal bench guy that you would want. So B minus for me. He did hit lefties for the main portion of the year. I know people weren't happy about what was going on with the lineups toward the end of the season, and I get it. But objectively, Jose Caballero put up a 126 WRC plus against left-handed pitching this year. And he put up a war above two, which by the way, among AL rookies, that was seven. Josh Young was a two and a half. Jose Caballero was a 2.2. Wow. I know people, I, I know <laughs> wow. people didn't, yeah, talk about that. I know a lot of people weren't happy about the lineup at the end of the year. And again, I get it. And here's why. What did Jose Caballero do against lefties in the final month? 41 WRC plus. So that's where I think we agree. Well, maybe there should have been some adjustments down the stretch. But year as a whole, play great defense, hit well against lefties at least, and was a good bench player. Now, again, he wasn't perfect. He made a flurry of base running mistakes this year. And he, again, was not good in the month of September. But I think he's a bench player that the Mariners can use next year. Yeah, bench player is, I think, what you and I agree on. After he had a really good month of May, I think that carried most of his offensive profile. June 1st on 88 WRC+, which, again, for a guy who's going to play defense and run the bases off your bench, is okay. That's fine. But uh, we'll see what the Mariners think about his role for next season. Staying on second base, Lyle, Colton Wong. I think it was you that wanted to give this grade more than anybody because he obviously didn't finish the year on the team. I, I don't really think there's a grade you could give him other than an F. Yeah, he got an F from me. And I the, the only line I have for this, if I were to draw a comparison of what Colton Wong's grade is in this on this podcast and then what a grade that would be in real life, I thought it would be a good comp dog. It would be like if you walked into Bio 101 at ASU and, uh, and tried taking that class. What did, did you think about a- that? Yeah, I did not take Bio 101, by the way, for that exact reason. Wouldn't have gone well. Kind of like Colton Wong's season here in Seattle. So, yeah, not good. It's a shame that one didn't work out. They really could have used him, and he wasn't the player they thought he was going to be. Did I, Okay, we've got two more guys left here. Tom Murphy, I'll just start with this one. I gave him a B plus. Look, he was not healthy. We know it's been a problem in his career that he can't stay on the field. But when he was on the field this year, he was crushing it and he played some solid defense. So quickly, Tom Murphy, when he was playing this year, was good. Yeah, I'll give him a B plus as well, especially when it, it they missed his bat down the stretch. The lineup slumped. They could have used a couple of DH days from Tom Murphy to ignite that lineup. And they didn't have it. He had one of his best seasons as a Mariner outside of a juice ball year. So that was, uh, that was very nice to see from Tom Murphy. I'm not sure if they bring him back. They probably need a little bit more reliability out of their backup catcher to not get hurt because as we've seen down the stretch, 
the last two seasons. Cal Raleigh's gotten worn out, and they haven't had a quality backup they've trusted to put in there against any sort of real competition. Sam Haggerty, Lyle. I think this is our last guy, right? Yeah. So he's kind of an incomplete grade because he wasn't playing a ton this year. He got sent down to Tacoma a couple of times, but I gave him a C for the role he was in. It was a C. His WRC plus was still above league average. He walked. He doesn't strike out. He steals the bases. So he's not perfect. He actually didn't play great defense this year. But again, for being the last guy on the bench, he was serviceable and serviceable as a C. I gave him B, actually, just because oh. of his role. I thought he filled his role. He's he was fast. Hmm. And he played six different positions and wasn't an absolute travesty at the plate. And usually that checks all the boxes for me when you're looking at a bench player. All right. So maybe C's a little tough. Maybe C plus or B minus is more in the range. I should have given him the grade because you're right that for his role, he was fine. He just wasn't he wasn't quite the way he was last year. And maybe that wasn't fair to expect out of him. But he didn't hurt the team by any stretch. Probably an, an anomaly year for him, but his role off the bench be one of the fastest guys on the field. I think the Mariners are going to take it. So I think that puts a wrap on our infield grades. Could definitely be better. We were expecting more, but this is what happened uh, in the 2023 season, and that's good. We talked a little bit about these infielders with Mike Salk, and it was good to get him on. We've been wanting to have Mike on for quite a while now. Finally able to make the connection. You made the connection in the T-Mobile Park press box. And we were able to get him on. It was good to hear a little bit about his career and everything else Mariners related. I mean, this dude wakes up 4.30 every morning to do his show, 6 to 10 on Seattle Sports. And it's like, this is all he talks about. And he he was a great interview and very authentic, very much like he is on the air. He's, uh, it, was a good, it was good to finally get him on. Yeah, very smart, very knowledgeable, passionate, as you could tell. And he knocks his show out of the park. Every morning, by the way, both him and Brock do on Brock and Saul, because, you know, it's not easy to get up that early and do those shows. I don't know if I'd have the energy for it every morning for years and years and years, but Mike does it and he does it as well as just about anybody in the business. So to have him on and talk Mariners with him and his career, it's pretty cool. So to get the full circle of Brock and Sock that we've actually now had on this podcast, we have the full circle of it on all 14 years. Let's get to our interview with Mike Salk. All right, we've got Mike Salk on with us, host of Brock and Salk on Seattle Sports. He's joining us after what a pretty slow news week, huh? Yeah, this was um, unique, that's for sure. I mean, you know, with the Mariners season obviously coming to the end, and then Cal's comments, and then JP's comments, and then Jerry's comments, and then, yeah, we have the opportunity to talk to Jerry today. It was uh, unique, to say the least. It was... um, you know, look, doing an interview like today with Jerry is, it's one of the highlights of the job because, you know, you know, there's going to be a lot of people listening. I sort of made a joke about earballs on it today. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of people listening to it. And that it feels like kind of a big responsibility the fan base is entrusting you with to, to ask the questions that they want in a big moment like that. Um, and at the same time, as I've mentioned a bunch of times on the show, Jerry's under no obligation to do that interview every week. He doesn't need to. He's not paid to do it. He's not required by contract to do it. So, you know, there is a bit of a line to be walked. And I know there are there is a probably small segment of the fan base that wants blood in every one of those moments, that wants you to you know, go for the jugular and 
wants to do what they can't do, which is to yell at Scott or Jerry or whomever it is that they're frustrated with. But the reality is it's an interview. It's an opportunity to gain information and opinion from the guest. And so tried to give him and put him in an opportunity to do exactly that. So, Mike, you mentioned with the interview you were doing with Jerry today that you felt a little bit nervous for it. And I don't know if that was nerves uh, for the responsibility of you doing the interview and wanting to get the right answers or on the other side worried what kind of answers you were going to get from Jerry. What, which one of those do you think it would have been? I think probably more of the first one. I mean, it, you know, you, you doing it, Brock and I have been doing this, what, 14 years, the better part of 14 years. We've interviewed a lot of people. We've done a lot of it together. Um, I think in our time, the biggest one I mentioned that we've done is probably Pete Carroll the morning after the Super Bowl loss, where he's got to come out and explain himself and what happened in this absolutely, you know, watershed moment for the organization, for the city, and for the fan base, et cetera. And, you know, Pete handled that and you know, 10 out of 10, of course. He just absolutely nailed it. You know, I think it's just sort of knowing that everything is going to be judged afterwards, right? Jerry's going to be judged. We're going to be judged. You only have a certain amount of time. It's not like doing a 2020 Barbara Walters interview or something where you can do it for four hours and then edit out, and, you know, create the absolute best parts. You get, in this case, some 24, 25 minutes and you want to make the most of it. You want to ask the right questions. So we've taken some interviewing classes over the years and, you know, some of the, some of the um, quote unquote rules of doing an interview, right. Trying to ask questions that will solicit a response um, and not yes or no, and not give the opportunity for somebody to kind of dodge out of it. So yeah, I, I think it just requires a little bit more extra preparation than your average everyday interview. And, you know, look, there's sort of two types of radio, right? You've got the interview you do weekly with somebody like Jeff Hassan or, you know, sort of a, a media person that may or may not be a friend. They're probably not looking to stonewall you, right? I mean, they're coming on because they want to talk. So you don't have to make such an effort to ask great questions. Um, you know, it can be more of a conversation. And we try to do that a lot with our, with our guests. With something like Jerry today, I mean, you're asking questions. You're trying to get at answers. Um, and so just like a little bit of a different style. So after what he said on Tuesday and now what he said now today on Thursday, of course, this interview is going to air next week when people yeah. are listening to this. But just just to bring it full circle, are you do you think they took enough responsibility for the result of this season? You know, look, um, yeah. I, I mean, I never felt like Jerry didn't take responsibility for the season. I mean, they they fell short. There's no doubt about it. He is trying to make an argument, which I think has some validity, that while the goals, they fell short of their ultimate goals, they didn't make the playoffs, they didn't improve on last year, there were positives in sort of the foundation of what they're doing. He's right. I mean, if you go back, their farm system is in better shape than it used to be. And they do have a young nucleus. There are, there's a lot of reasons to be excited if you're a Mariner fan, I would certainly hope. The flip side of that, though, is they lost two more games than they did a year ago. They didn't make the playoffs. Teams around them, specifically the Rangers, obviously got better. And, you know, there's now some question marks due to Cal's comments and JP's public comments 
about you know what the strength is of and the and the belief is inside that clubhouse, right? You know, coaches and managers, et cetera, often talk about buy-in. You know, all of a sudden we've got a question about what the level of buy-in is to to what they're doing. Did you know these quotes were going to go as viral as they were? Because I was sitting a few seats down from you during that press conference, and that was the first real sit-down presser I'd been in. So maybe I was a little bit naive, and I was also trying to soak in an hour's worth of content. But I read your your article on 710sports.com this, this week, or in Seattle Sports, about what that press conference uh, kind of resulted in and, and how fans yeah. took it and everything. And you said you were pretty appalled after Jerry said that we're doing the fan base a favor thing. So did you think this was going to kind of spiral the way it did? Uh, well, yeah, you were sitting just a couple of seats down from me. I'm, 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 I was curious if you heard me gasp because I did. And when he said, it, I went, <gasps> I was, I was fairly shocked that those words had come out of his mouth. Uh, I knew it had the capability of becoming that big a story. I didn't know. You, know, you never know whether everyone else is going to pick up on it the same way, but I sure wasn't surprised. I mean, that was, you know, unfortunately for Jerry, because I, I don't think it's it's what he meant to say. It drowned out everything else that he said over the course of basically an hour. And I don't think he had any choice but to come out a couple of days later and walk those comments back, apologize, say he was embarrassed, say that it's not what he meant to say. and. You know, I think he tried to do a lot of that when he came on the show. What's Jerry's biggest flaw? You know, I don't know that I know the answer to that, and, and I feel maybe a little uncomfortable answering the question. I I don't know what he's like to work with, what he's like to work for, what he's like for the other GMs. You know, I think Jerry, I don't know if it's a flaw or not. He would probably tell you it's a strength. He likes to separate himself from the clubhouse. He is not, you know, it's funny because he's such an engaging person. He's not tried to be a relationship guy inside the clubhouse. It seems as if he's sort of left that to Scott and to the man, you know, to the managerial staff, et cetera, the on-field staff. You know, it seems to have led to some interpersonal things with Kyle Seeger, right, over the years. And now you sort of have this series of issues over the course of the last week or two or three, maybe if you want to go back to George Kirby, you know, I, I think that one's certainly a question mark, but you know, it, it's really hard for me. Ultimately, what is his job as the president of baseball operations? Build a winner, right? And he's done such a great job, I think, of building a developmental system, drafting very well over the last few years, especially building something where pitchers are, are, turned from average to well above average. I mean, they seem to have a pretty good system going where Jerry has yet to really succeed in his career is taking a good team and turning it into a great one, right? Taking a team. And I think that's why fans and everybody else were so aghast at the 54% comment because it's, it, it, it fits the easy answer, right? Hey, how come this guy's been able to get teams to a good place, but not a great one? Well, if he's only looking to win 54% of the games, that makes sense. You get, you know, you're perfectly designed to achieve the results you get. I don't think Jerry wants to win 54% of his games. And he said today very clearly that is, you know, a baseline, not an average. But I think that's still the biggest question mark about Jerry. I won't call it a weakness, but I would definitely call it a question mark. Can he take a team that's good and has a good nucleus like this one and turn it into a great one? The last time he tried to do it, he had an older veteran team 
that wasn't going to get much better and didn't have much in the cupboard in the in the farm system in terms of assets to help it improve was also at the top of its spending. It wasn't going to improve. There was no real avenue to go from good to great. Now he's got the avenues. the The players are young. The core is young. It is legitimate. It's got you know room to grow. You would hope in terms of payroll. And more than anything, it's got a farm system behind it that can either add to what you've got here by, by coming up and helping themselves or by helping to acquire the players you need to get over the top. And it's up to him to show everybody that he can do that. So going off that, and you answered it a little bit there in that answer of yours, but what do you think Jerry's biggest strength is? Well, yeah, I, again, I, I still feel a little uncomfortable answering, not, you know, just because I'm not around the guy every day. And, you know, I think that what Jerry has done, I also think we misunderstand the role of somebody in his position. You know, I think we tend to imagine someone like Jerry, GM, president of baseball ops, whatever, as like on the phones all day, talking to every other GM, pulling trades, right? Like, you know, get ready to sign free agents and that that's where they spend all their time. Certainly that's a part of the job, but there's a reason it's general manager in these days. Management of a gigantic staff below you has become an enormous part of that job. I forget how many people are in baseball ops for the Mariners. I don't know if it's 100, but that, that, that number doesn't sound insane to me, so don't quote me on the number. But remember that there's a huge staff underneath Jerry and Justin Hollander. They've got, you know, analytics people and scouting people, advanced scouts and pro scouts and amateur scouts. They've got minor league coordinators, minor league people, minor league coaching staff. And some of that job is managing that enormous staff of people. And, you know, that is something that I know had been a problem for previous regimes with the Mariners. How do you organize and manage all of that information and all of those people? From what I've been told, that has improved greatly in under Jerry's tutelage and, and leadership over the course of the last few years. And it's important, right? I mean, if you can't manage the people, then you can't do that job, even if you were the greatest evaluator of talent in the world. Jerry's done a pretty good job of choosing a lot of the right young talents. I think there's still some question marks about choosing some of the major league talent that you're bringing back in trades, et cetera. So that group has a really big responsibility this offseason through a number of different avenues to improve this baseball team. There, There is one big one. So they have a, they have a lot to plan out. And I think you do too, Mike. I, I, I was curious. Do you already Are you already sort of thinking ahead like, what a show might look like if the Mariners actually manage to sign Shohei Otani versus, okay, what are, what are we going to say if they don't sign him? Because the reaction will be quite strong either way. Um, I wouldn't say I plan it out now. I mean, that would be impressive if I had, I mean, that would be great. I'd sleep more. That's for sure. Like, oh yeah. All right. Hey guys, load up the pro Shohei show. Let's go. That would be awesome. In fact, now I kind of have me thinking about a good idea. Um, no, I mean, you know, you got to react in the moment and, and certainly Shohei will be a conversation, but look, you know, is the reaction going to be negative if they don't sign Shohei? Probably. But you're setting yourself up to be upset if you are banking on Sho- Shohei Otani signing the Mariners. I just don't know why he would. I mean, I, you know, if I'm him, I'm leaving a dumpster fire in Anaheim. I'm going to come to a place that has, you know, gone through this public 
issue here over the course of the last few weeks, real or not real. I mean, the, the, the actuality of the situation might be that being here is awesome. But if I'm Shohei Otani and I'm looking at this, the perception of it is probably pretty challenging. So I don't know what's going to motivate him. He's kind of a mystery to everybody. Is it going to be location? Is it going to be star power? Is it going to be ability to win? Is it going to be money? Is it going to be the nucleus, the manager, the pitching coach, the hitting coach? I mean, we don't have any idea what's going on in Shohei Otani's head, but I think we do know that he's already not chosen to be here once, that there's a lot of very real reasons to go to LA where the Dodgers seem to have everything in line. And, you know, my guess is that's where he's going to end up where it's all said and done. So am I going to be angry with the Mariners for not signing Shohei? No, I just, I don't, I don't think that's a reasonable position to take. Do I think they need to give it their all? Yes. But I also think they better be ready to pivot incredibly quickly because the next best player available to them is Juan Soto. And he's not Shohei Otani. Nobody is. But he's pretty darn good. And if even if you only get him for the one season after you deal for him, I I think that would be a much more realistic target because it's a little bit more in your control, not entirely. You need the other team to agree and like your prospect package, et cetera, and somebody else doesn't trump you, et cetera. But yeah, man, I I I I'd, I'd want to be ready to pivot real quick to trying to get another impact player. Okay, so I have two follow-ups to that. Number one is, it sounds like you feel like what's gone on over the last few weeks between Kirby, between Cal, between Jerry's comments may have negatively impacted how Shohei is viewing Seattle. I mean, I guess may. It may have. I mean, I, I guess I have felt all along like Shohei Otani is going to go to the Dodgers. So it, it's it's been difficult for me to look at this and say, oh yeah, no, this is you know the, the nail in the coffin. It's not going to happen. I never really thought it was going to happen. I think it's a fun argument and a fun conversation. It's great to be excited and hopeful, but I've always felt like that was kind of setting up most fan bases for disappointment. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the results of this year may all of a sudden put the Rangers into a category of being an intriguing second option for him. So, you know, if you're a Mariner fan, I'd be really almost hopeful in some ways that he goes to the Dodgers and exits the division. Just stop being in the AOS, please. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I don't know for sure. Again, nobody knows what's going on in Shohei's head, but I don't think the perception was great. So I don't know how it would have helped. And then my second follow-up to that is now you bring up Juan Soto, who is an incredible talent. However, he is also a Boris guy and he's starting to sound like Trey Turner a little bit in terms of having an East coast preference. So if you're the Mariners, do you truly give up a haul for one year of Juan Soto? If it's you. Well, I don't know whether it is a haul anymore. I think that's sort of the the difference. Whereas if you were trading for Juan Soto when the Padres did, you were going to get, what, at that point, two, almost two and a half years of Juan Soto. Now you're trading for a year of Juan Soto. The reality is that's just not as valuable in the market as it used to be, right? What does Juan Soto cost? I know Passon said, you know, Kelnick, a pitcher, and two other prospects. I don't know if it's that much, to be honest with you. I don't think he, you know, I would guess it's more like Kelnick and a prospect, maybe a second. And, you know, some of that depends. The Padres like Kelnick. Some teams probably do. Some teams probably don't. I mean, like, it's easy for us to just throw out a name, but A.J. Preller's a human being who has preferences and has his own baseball, you know, 
organization with hundreds of people that are all going to do their analysis. And maybe they think they can unlock Jared Kelnick, maybe not. So it's easy for us to say like, ah, just Kelnick and a prospect. Oh, how come they didn't get it done? Well, maybe Preller doesn't like Jared Kelnick, right? So it's, it's, there's real human beings involved. I don't, I don't know whether the cost for one year of Soto is something that you can't get past. I think you can afford. And uh, another guy whose name has been lightly floated as a guy you could trade off this roster is Logan Gilbert. I, I personally don't think they should trade Logan Gilbert. I think he makes their team better than whatever they could fetch on the trade market. So if Juan Soto is not worth, say, what Logan Gilbert could potentially bring back in a trade package, is there anybody? Anybody that you would, I would say, trade him for. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some ways in which you trade Logan Gilbert. And boy, would I hate it. I love Logan Gilbert. As a person, as a guy to talk to, as a dude on the mound, there's nothing about Logan Gilbert I don't like at all. Like, zero. So I love having him on the team, and I think that nucleus of Castillo and Gilbert and Kirby is the envy of most teams in Major League Baseball. I love it. So all of this is sort of hypothetical. The reason you think about it is if you could go sign pitching somewhere else and bring something in, can you? I don't know. But there are more pitchers than hitters available on the market this offseason. If you think you could reasonably well replace that production, could you make a deal with the Orioles? Let's say the Orioles don't win the World Series. Let's say they lose in the ALCS. And it becomes, and by you know, this point, maybe the Orioles are out by the time we have you know, this airs. I mean, who the heck knows? I'll sound stupid. But, you know, maybe, maybe the Orioles decide, all right, we just need an arm. I mean, like, we've put together this incredible lineup. We have this unbelievable farm system. We've got a bullpen. But let's face it, the starting pitching in Baltimore is not what it is in a few of the other towns. Yeah, we're willing to give up something big to go get a guy like Logan Gilbert, who they would then control for, what, four years, I think it is at that time? Maybe it's only three. Um, but you get my point. Like, okay, maybe that is, I don't know if it's Gunnar Henderson, uh, but, like, they've got some real dudes you know, on that on that roster in that organization, some of whom are major league ready. I don't think you're going to get Jackson Holiday. But maybe there's that type of a, a, a dude who comes in and changes the game. Cedric Mullins, unfortunately, is probably a little too old now to be that guy. But if he was a year or two younger and, and with more club control, I'd be like, yeah, would I trade Logan Gilbert for a Cedric Mullins two years ago? Yeah, I think I would in, in that situation where I could sign pitching. And now all of a sudden I got an outfield with Julio and Cedric Mullins and maybe I can go find one other bat. Yeah, that's pretty intriguing. So, you know, I think those are the types of moves that Jerry's got to be thinking about. Yeah, the Orioles are an interesting one. So we've talked about the Cardinals and we've talked about the Orioles just in terms of teams with some young bats that need pitching because there was a lot of ties at the deadline, whether they were real or not, between the Mariners and the Cardinals just yep. in terms of teams that had needs. You know, that would be interesting just because if if the Orioles weren't willing to trade Jackson Holiday or Gunnar Henderson, and I'm assuming they wouldn't exactly be uh, quick to move off those guys, then it kind of becomes the core of there's Heston Kerstad or Jordan Westberg. There's some guys like that. Yeah. Where I I guess I'm just sitting here and thinking back and forth of would those guys cost a Logan Gilbert? I guess if you get into the second tier of the Orioles prospects, maybe that's more in the Wu or Miller category. And may and I guess that becomes a question of would the Mariners deal one of those guys 
It's, they're all fair questions. I mean, and, and I don't know that they want to deal any of their pitching. I mean, they made it pretty clear on Tuesday that that was not something they're looking to do. So all of this is sort of, you know, not just hypothetical, but maybe hypothetically unlikely. Um, but you got a lot of pitching. And, you know, all of the, this conversation, I think, would be different if Robbie Ray was due back in April. But Robbie Ray being due back at the All-Star game at a minimum, I think maybe changes the equation a little bit. Yeah, you may get Marco back, which would be interesting. Do I think that's, you know, like, I don't think that's going to be a big part of their season next year. You know, it sounds like uh, like Emerson Hancock will be ready to go and, and he may compete for a spot. That's great. But I, it, it's going to be it's going to be hard, I think, without Robbie Ray coming back as that veteran that you have some level of faith in in, in the starting rotation. I think that makes it a little harder for them to think about making a big deal. out of that. I guess if we were going to get into your career a little bit here, Mike, as I know we've talked. <laughs> talked about some boring uh i don't think it is i think you've had some pretty interesting stuff happen in your career and i mean where do we even want to start uh you know what here i'll start with this because this is your third rendition of brock and salk here and i remember connecting with brock a few years ago we have a family friend who who connected me with him and he was telling me the story of your guys's start and he was telling me how when he auditioned over at 710 they tried him out with a few different co-hosts and I'm sure he's talked to you about this at length and he just told me a little snippet of it that when he was going through some of the potential partners he walked away from it at the end saying you know most of them were pretty great but I don't know how I feel about that salt guy and now here you are basically all these years later and you're what I would say the face of Seattle sports radio so my question is how did your chemistry kind of evolve over the years to get as good as it is now? Well, it took time, that's for sure, because he's not the only one who came away from that meeting thinking, eh, I don't know if that's going to be the right <laughs> fit. Uh, I was unemployed. The station I was working at in Boston was folding. I came out here for that interview. Literally, after not sleeping, I had been on my honeymoon in Nicaragua, which uh, our flight home got canceled by over a day. And I missed my connection back to Seattle for this interview. I mean, it was a disaster. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting there that morning because I've been out of the country for the previous two weeks. And I'm, I'm, I'm over at the station knowing I'm going to do something with Brock, something with Kevin Calabro and some other third thing. And um, I'm, I remember calling Albert Breer and Keith Law, who were friends of mine in the business, uh, and just like, tell me everything you can tell me about the Seahawks in five minutes. And he's like, okay, veteran team at a crossroads. Holmgren just left. Here's where they're at. I'm like, okay, quit scribbling down notes. Keith, tell me about these Mariners. And he's like, well, Junior's coming back, old team, this and that. Kind of a, okay, got it. Like wrote down all these notes furiously and then started doing the, the, the mock shows. And, you know, I started doing it with Brock. It's funny too, the guy who hired me had told me I had the job. He was not accurate, but he had told me, oh, yeah, you got the job. We just want to come bring you out and figure out where the best spot is for you. So I'm like, oh, great. This is awesome. I got the job. And uh, so they do. I do some stuff with Brock and Kevin. I'm able to basically, like, you know, transcribe exactly what Keith and, and Bert had told me. And uh, then they're like, hey, will you guys, you and Brock, just do something that has nothing to do with sports. And somehow Brock and I ended up talking about Puyall up and the pig races and all of that. And I was just making fun of him and kind of ripping him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it, that was the thing that sort of caught the ear of a couple of people at the station who were like, you know what? 
that chemistry is unique. There's this like, you know, conservative Christian good guy with this liberal Jewish East Coast, you know, pain in the butt. And what if we stick them together and maybe that sort of natural friction will work? Well, unfortunately, the first year of it didn't work at all. I mean, it was awful. If any, you know, I know there's always people I meet people who are like, oh, I've been a listener since the beginning. I'm like, no, you are not. Nobody was listening at the beginning. We got the ratings. We were like 28th in the market, a 0.00001 share. Brock and I wanted to kill each other. We had no idea what we were doing. I'm trying to be East Coast hot take guy like everybody I grew up listening to. Brock's nodding along and not saying anything. Every time he doesn't say anything, I'm like, all right, I got to go big. I got to say something more interesting. People are getting mad. I mean, it was a disaster. So it did take us a long time to, to figure out that we worked well together and to trust each other and to lean on each other. And, you know, as we sit here 14 years later, you know, there's no one outside my family that I feel closer to than Brock. I mean, we, we, there are a lot of duos. I'll just sort of finish the answer on this. There's a lot of duos around the country honestly, that don't care for each other that much. I'm not saying they outright hate each other, but they come in, they do the show, they leave. That's the extent of it. They're not that invested in each other's lives. They're just coworkers. Some actually don't like each other, but you know, most of them are just coworkers. I think neither of us are really capable of doing that. I mean, I think the way our show is set up, it's built on a friendship and a desire that each of us have to talk to each other. So... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, don't make me cry because I will occasionally cry when having this conversation because Brock does mean that much to me. So, yeah, we 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 like to give each other a lot of grief, but I think, you know, I think it hopefully comes through that that comes from the love and the trust that we have for each other. Do you ever sit back and think about how much the Seattle sports scene has changed since you guys started in 2009 until when you guys reunited again last September? There wasn't a hockey team, right? The baseball team has changed drastically and the city has a championship all in that span from start to now third time through and how you guys talk about it and how your chemistry evolved. Like how do you ever, do you often think, sit back and think about that stuff? Yeah. I really appreciate being called old right here on the podcast. That's great. <laughs> I really appreciate that. TJ. Um, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, everything is since then. I mean, you know what I probably think of more, honestly, and, and I think more about how the city has changed since 2009. I think about how Brock and my lives have changed since 2009, right? I mean, I came out here, I was 30 years old on the button and, you know, I'm 45 now and I've got two kids and Brock's kids who I met right when I first came out or in college. I mean, like, it, it, it's such a complete, like, I think we are so different in such different stages of our life that I probably end up thinking about that more. The Seattle sports scene, look, it's different, but I, it's funny. I don't think of it as being that, that different. The Sonics still haven't come back. They had left the year before I got here. The Mariners are still trying to figure it out and trying to become a championship team. And you know, they've made the playoffs once in that in that 14 year stretch. And, you know, the Seahawks, yeah, they've changed since year one. They haven't changed that much since year two when Pete Carroll came in. I mean, you know, he came in almost as soon as we got her as one year of Mora. And by the next year, Pete was in. So, yeah, it's, it's a funny question because it has changed a lot. The fan bases have certainly changed a lot. The interest and in what people are concerned about has changed a lot. 
Mariners ownership has changed. Seahawks ownership has changed. Mariners general managers. Have, I mean, like a lot has changed. And yet I actually feel like more is the same than more is different when it comes to the Mariners. That being said, as I've mentioned them before, sometimes I'm late to the party on these things. And sometimes I think things are still kind of moving in one direction. And I don't realize that the world has taken a left turn and left me behind. So you may be a lot more accurate on this one than me, but I, I don't know. I, I tend to kind of think that things are more similar than they are different. And I've been curious about this uh, to peel off from sports just a tiny bit because you didn't start in sports, did you? Uh, I didn't start in radio. I've never done no. any non-sports radio. Okay. Um, but I started my career in the political world. I started right. uh, in Los Angeles working for a U.S. congresswoman. Her campaign uh, went from there to an L.A. city council person and then to a lobbying firm in L.A. doing local lobbying before I, I decided that it wasn't the career path I wanted to go back. So, yeah, that was, uh, I was like 26, 27, something like that, when I decided to, to get into this job. So you must have been the one in the break room just just firing off, just whatever's on your mind, yeah. <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I could take you inside the lobbying firm I worked at. It, it's probably the worst environment. I Well, I shouldn't say that. I did work at it. Second worst environment I've ever been in in terms of just a, you know, a, just a really tough place to work. Uh, and it you know, was enough at that point to convince me that it's not what I wanted to do for a living. I just said, you know, I'm out. I always liked sports. I always liked radio. I never thought I would work in either field. But uh, a good friend of mine from college, a friend of mine named Crystal, just said to me one day we were having dinner. And she's like, dude, what are you doing? Stop denying your passions. Go try to be in sports radio. And I'm like, well, that's dumb. Never going to work. Nobody gets into it. I'm not an ex-athlete. I've never done any radio before. You know, the shot is one in a million to even break in. How many 26-year-old dudes think they want to get into sports radio, especially from Boston? Like, you know, I couldn't be more of just a number. And she's like, hey, try for a few years. See what happens. Because whatever you're doing is making you miserable. And she convinced me. Went home, talked to my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and just like, I think I might do this. She was incredibly supportive. And, you know, I, I went about it kind of talking to some of the right people in LA. I knew people who knew people in, in you know, DJs or sports hosts or whatever. And uh, Matt Money Smith, who is uh, now on, uh, I forget which day, he's on the Fox. He's with Petros, right? isn't he? Yeah, with Petros. And he's great. Yep. At the time, he was doing sports for like the sports updates on the Kevin and Bean morning show on K Rock. And uh, I knew somebody who knew him, and he talked to me. He spent an hour talking to me. He was awesome. Uh, a guy named Jose, who was doing some of the same stuff. Uh, I'm sorry, Joe, Joe Grande. Joe Grande, who was doing some of the same stuff for um, Big Boy's show in L.A. He took me in and, and let me come watch him do a, a show one morning, which was awesome. And Ryan Rosillo, who I used to listen to every day in Boston on a defunct 5,000-watt crappy station, uh, Ryan took my emails and, and talked to me and got on the phone with me and gave me a lot of great advice and actually ended up helping me get my first internship where I, I basically worked for Ryan, who I think the world of. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who've since then been incredibly successful in their careers were in just really, really nice to me and generous with their time, uh, as I was trying to figure out my career. I also got lucky if I was trying to do, I mean, in a lot of ways, but if I were trying to do that now, it's harder. There are fewer internships. There are fewer stations. 
this stupid industry has killed almost every way for us to develop people. We don't have any more late night shows. We don't have any more weekend shows. We no longer have sports center updates or whatever you want to call them on almost any station. There's, there's so few ways to gain experience to get into the business that I, you know, I feel terrible when younger people come to me and say, Hey, what do I do? Like, dude, I don't know. I mean, I do what you guys are doing for sure. I do a podcast. I'd make sure I'm, I'm practicing every day, but I don't, I don't have a good answer for people. And I think it's one of the biggest problems our, our business has. We're not growing the next generation of, of hosts very well at all. And so when somebody like a Stacy Ross makes it onto the air and gets a show, you got to support the heck out of her because she's so freaking talented, but it's hard to get the, the reps. And thankfully, Stacy has. Stacy's the best, by the way. I think mean, you're not far away from, I appreciate what you said, Lyle, about being the, the face of sports radio in this town. I don't know if this is the face anybody wants to put on it, but I don't think you're too far away from saying that. You know, about bumping Stacy, but specifically about Stacy, who I think is just unbelievably talented. So, uh, and that's not a shot. Bump's awesome too. I love all the folks at our station. We've we've some really good people. I, I just because Stacy and I do more of the same job, right? As 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 people that lead the show, I just I think she's going to be killer. I think she already is, but I think she's only going to get better. Okay, I've got one quick spinoff since you talked about your little career journey there. When you worked for Rosillo, as somebody who listens to his podcast, was his life advice good back then? <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's funny. Ryan and I have never gotten along that well. I don't think he likes me very much, which is funny. Maybe he would hear this and be like, no, I think Mike's fine. But I think <laughs> that he and I don't have like, like, we sort of rub each other wrong. I don't know what the reason for it is. I think he just, I don't know. I, I, know, I shouldn't speak for him. I don't really know. And I, I just... I think he's brilliant. I think he's one of the absolute best in this business and has been forever. Um, when he was on that station, I mean, this has got to be 2003, maybe 2004, something like that. He did a bit that I thought was so freaking funny at the time called the Sunday Night Girlfriend, where he was like, you know, I really think there should be some sort of a service for dudes on Sundays where you get a girlfriend just for Sunday night. And I'm, he's like, you know, just to hang out with, just to like, you know, watch the Sopranos with at the end of a weekend of like going out and partying, like all of a sudden all my buddies with girlfriends like disappear Sunday night. And I'm looking around like, you know, what do I do? And I just, I thought it was the funniest darn thing in the world. And obviously he was joking. He was over the top. And it's probably not a bit that he or anybody else would do today. Different climate, different world, different everything. But it just always sort of struck me as sort of part of his ability to relate to the audience, which is, you know, Ryan's, he's so smart, so talented in so many ways. But I think his best strength is his ability to relate to his listener. And especially then when he was in his late 20s, maybe 30 years old, he just felt like everything I like was thinking in my head, he was saying on the radio. So I, yeah, I, I think the world of Ryan, I really do. There's an interview you did last year, very notable one, that you guys had Richard Sherman on your show. And I think Lyle and I talked about this when you had it on. If you haven't, if you have not heard this interview, I think it's still up on your guys' podcast page. You can go back and find it and listen to it and understand what we're talking about. But, you know, Sherm, well, I, I think the way to say this is, you know, athletes won't always come up to you and and say what they feel about what you said even if they've heard it they won't always do it yeah but sherman very on brand to himself 
told you how he felt about that live on an interview. You were unprepared. You had no idea. That's what he was thinking coming on that show. Yeah. And he just, he, he laid it on you right away. And I thought, and Lyle did too, did a great job of handling that and not getting flustered as, and I was thinking about that. I work in radio too. And if someone did that to me live on the air, just totally catch you off guard like that, especially someone as notable as that. I don't know how I would react, but you handled it great. And I'm just curious, how, how do you prepare yourself to handle a situation like that? You don't. I, I mean, like, I guess I would say I didn't know Richard Sherman was going to do that that day. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's a nice, a nice compliment. I appreciate it. I didn't know he was going to do that that day, but I wasn't shocked. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you know, going into it, that this is the same Richard Sherman who yelled at Skip Bayless and all the things that Richard had done over the years. And, you know, going into it that I've been critical of him for a million different reasons. And I stand by every one of them, you know, I wasn't shocked. I thought it was great that KJ was able to get him to come on. I thought and assumed that once he had agreed to come on, he was willing to have a normal conversation where we would sort of pretend that there was nothing going on, that, that we, there was And I didn't even know that he knew who I was. I mean, like, you know, I've heard sometimes that guys do, and sometimes I have no idea. So I, I wasn't shocked. I didn't know it was going to happen. And I guess I just, I don't know, I've learned over the years not to get your dander up it's against my nature probably i'm probably wired more like sherm probably more like jerry depoto in some ways to sort of want to you know go right back and argue things out i just didn't think it was appropriate in that moment um and i've experienced a lot of different ways in which athletes have gotten upset at me i know it's part of the job i try to make myself accessible it used to be before kids going into locker rooms and clubhouses so that if I said something, you'd see my face. I don't like operating from an ivory tower. Admittedly, I've lost some of that over the years as kids become a bigger part of your life. And going down to the ballpark every afternoon for two or three hours just isn't a real possibility when you're schlepping around the city as a lead chauffeur with your kids. I mean, that, that changes just unfortunately your life dynamic. But, you know, a lot of those guys have handled it differently. And I've told all these stories on the air. I mean, Richard never said a word and blocked me on Twitter. Oh, that's the other reason I wasn't that surprised. He blocked me on Twitter. And so when he came up, I was like, okay, that's how he wants to operate. Bobby Wagner, who's a class act in every conceivable way, got in touch with me uh, with a DM at some point and ended up texting and just said, dude, what's the deal? I hear you're saying stuff about me that's not positive. And he and I talked it out. And I stood by what I had said, but gave him more context to it. And Bobby and I, I wouldn't say we're close. We're not close. We're not friends. I don't mean that. But we have a good relationship. And, and you know, we're certainly able to communicate. and We understand where each other are coming from. You know, Doug Baldwin and I didn't get along for a really, really long time. G spilled the beans, unfortunately, that I did talk to him recently and sort of clear the air there. Uh, and there have been plenty of others. I mean, the Kyle Seeger comments caused some, some consternation a, a year or so ago. But Mitch Hanniger and I talked about them and, and explained, you know, where we were each coming from when it came to that. So, you know, the reality is athletes tend, I won't say always, but tend to be shown or hear the negative comments that people make about them. They also tend to live in a bubble where almost everyone around them says positive things to them. And so that's just a natural friction point, I think, for a an honest sports radio host, an honest critic, and an athlete. And 
A, they don't hear the positive things that go with it. B, sometimes they don't even really hear what was said. They only hear just a snippet or not even the right information. And C, that's jarring to them because most everywhere they go, everybody kisses their tail and tells them how awesome they are. So, you know, I get it. Athletes don't want to be criticized. They don't want to be held accountable. Who does? Who the heck wants to be held accountable? I don't want to be. I don't like when people tell me that I've done something dumb on the show. I totally understand why they don't want to be told that they did something wrong in a game or in their life. But unfortunately, our cottage industry has been set up to to kind of judge a lot of those things and offer commentary on them. So it's a little, um, it's a weird balance. There's no doubt about it. But I, I appreciate you saying that I handled the Sherm thing okay. Ultimately, I think Brock and I have learned to laugh at some of those things. And that's why our Opens have... Jim Mora yelling at Brock or Sark getting mad at us or Sherm or whatever the case may be, because generally self-deprecation and laughing at yourself tends to be the best mess. Because of the similarities of the situations, does this leave the window open for debate television with Sherman about 10 years? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, of course. Yes. Um, I think I would enjoy talking to Doug more than I would enjoy talking to Sherm just stylistically. Um, But of course, man, I mean, you know, if Richard can, I mean, money talks, obviously. So if, yeah. if Sherm can make it work with, uh, with, with Skip now, yeah, let's look at 2033 for the Salk and Sherm show. We'll see where that goes. Yeah. <laughs> if we were going to wrap this up on one more lighthearted note, Mike, you guys got a call this week from just the pride of Maple Valley. So off that, I thought I'd ask you, if off, just off the top of your head right here, you could rank your three best callers ever. Ooh. Do you think you can do it? Well, you know, it's in some ways a cheat because Brock and I spent a while doing a top five caller ranking a few years ago in iteration number two of Brock and Salk. We did sort of a rotation top five caller thing. So, you know, I kind of remember who they were at that time. I mean, Roger in Tacoma has always been a great caller for everybody, not just our show. I mean, he's a legend. And we've met Roger. Great dude. Um, you know, and he came in. I don't know if you remember this story, but Roger... We invited him in. Brock probably invited him in. That's a Brock thing to do. And so he he invited him in, and uh, <laughs> Roger sits down next to me, and we get him all ready. And he's a great call. I mean, Roger always comes with it. And we turn to him, like, hey, Roger, and we ask him a question, and he goes, <laughs> I mean, like, the noise he made is so sad. I mean, we have a cut on tape. I mean, just this little one-second noise. It's terrible. Um, and so Roger panicked in the moment, that's for sure. Um, I mean, he's probably the guy that I always would think about when when you when you ask me who the best is. But there have been a lot of others over the years, and it's interesting how some will kind of come in and then they'll drop out for a while. And you know, I get it. You know, people's lives change, and maybe they're you know they get into music for a while and come back to sports radio or whatever the case may be. But I do like talking to callers. I mean, I, I wish it was still something we did more uh, when I first got into this business was right as programmers were starting to go away from the phone call as being a primary part of sports radio. And the thinking at the time was, why would you ever give up control of your show to somebody or to people that you don't know what they're going to say, right? It's one thing when I give up control of my show to Jeff Passan or Jerry DePoto, because I know know who they are. I know roughly, you know, the type of of thoughts they're going to have. But when you go to, you know, Joe and wherever, you don't know what that person's going to say. And 
they might call up and talk about something that you don't want to talk about or isn't the right conversation for the day. And I think programmers start to really freak out about that. And so the, 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 I think it, the, they started saying, hey, don't take phone calls unless you've asked a question, unless there's a specific topic that everyone is talking about. Well, that got sort of game of telephoned out. And all of a sudden, people heard, don't ever take phone calls. Phone calls are bad. And I don't think they are. I, I think the one of the great unique things about live sports radio in a world that is increasingly more, you know, things like this that we're doing and less things that I do every day is that there's immediate live reaction and connection with fans, right? It's instant. And you can do some of that, I know, on Instagram and, and YouTube. I'm not saying that can't be recreated in other ways, but radio still has this cool, instant reaction sports bar element where you can take local reaction. And in a world that is increasingly national, right, where where ESPN and the big, you know, it's great. What's what? Skip and Sherm does great. But if you only want to hear Seahawks and you want to talk to somebody about the Seahawks, good luck, right? And so I, I do think that sports radio will always have that role. It may not be on AM one day. It may not be on FM one day. It may exist only through YouTube or whatever, you know, whatever format it will change into. But I guess I just, well, certainly I hope so, because otherwise I'm not going to make it to retirement. But I, I, I really do have a lot of hope and belief that that will always be kind of the, the thing that allows this business to continue, the desire for us all to talk to each other about sports. And it's an awesome common ground thing about people, right? I mean, politics are divisive. I don't know if you've heard uh, over the last couple of years, politics is a little bit divisive. Um, but sports tend to be very, you know, they, 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 they bring people together and social capital and community, I think, can really be enhanced through talking about sports. So I'm not telling myself or in any way, uh, I'm not a hero, trust me, but I, I do support what our industry does because while it can be combative and it can be negative if you let it be that way, and I'm guilty of doing that, yeah, I, I like it. I like that we get to talk to each other and I think sports have a pretty important role in our, in our life. Last thing from me, Mike. I, I'm a little surprised we didn't get any honorable mentions in that ranking. Just a little bit. What do you think? Are you a ranked fan or are you with more? It's a little disorganized. Oh my God. No. Oh, TJ. Isn't the point, of, isn't the point of, of a ranking to have people debate what you left out of the ranking? Because if you include it in the honorable mention, I feel like it's less likely people are to complain and drive the conversation. That's an interesting point of view. You know, if Mora would say something like that, then we'd have like an actual debate about <laughs> it. Uh, yeah. Adam, yes. That's the point of some rank. It's not the point of this ranking. That's true. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I don't know. We just have fun with it. Justin and I, I, I love the bit. I think it's fun to, I think it's fun to try to think of as many things as you can do. And I think it's something that a lot of people I know do naturally. Um, and, you know, you're right. There is, there is something to leaving out a lot of it, some of that blank space. But I also think the like, ah, oh, I didn't think of that one is sort of part of the fun of it. So I like it. I like, I love music. It's a big part of my life and I like getting an opportunity to have just a few minutes to kind of explore that. I would have been just as happy becoming a music DJ as I would have becoming a sports radio host. I love music. I've always been into it. Probably more into it, honestly, than, than sports radio over the course of my life. So 
it's uh it's maybe it's a passion project, but I enjoy doing it for the last few minutes. Well, Mike, this has been awesome. We appreciate all the time you've taken to talk with us today. We enjoyed talking Mariners. We certainly enjoyed hearing about your career, and we hope to do it again soon because this has been get awesome. Some of the some of the crazy Mariner questions that you know that Dylan and Logan and those guys get. I was prepared for the wild <laughs> and wacky. Oof. Well, we're not exactly the payroll Twitter people. We're, we think more on the, along the lines of you, so we're, we weren't planning to come with any questions like that. You're the best. No, I love that you guys do stuff like this. I think it's awesome. You guys do a great job, and uh, I just appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and and asking me to tell bad stories about myself. I appreciate it. Really, really enjoyed that conversation with Mike Salk. He is such a great guy to talk to, not just about baseball, but about his career and the business, the industry as a whole. One of the smartest people out there in terms of sports media and certainly in the Seattle market. I hope you guys have checked out Brock and Salk by now. If you haven't, you should probably start turning on your radio dials and listening to him in the mornings because they're awesome. And as you could tell from this interview with Mike, that'll just about wrap it up for this edition of the Marine Layer podcast. You guys know the drill. You want to listen to the full form podcast, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon. That's on our audio side. If you do that, make sure to follow us, download our episodes, leave us a five-star review. I know we always stress it, but truly we do mean it. The reviews and the downloads help us out a ton, so be sure to do that. And watch us on YouTube too. Make sure to watch us on YouTube. We've got a video side to the podcast. Head over there, like, comment, subscribe, turn our notification bells on and also follow us on social media. If you want player interviews and show clips and hypotheticals and the whole nine yards thrown out there to you in the offseason, follow our social channels. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube shorts at Marine Layer Pod. That's TJ. I'm Lyle. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.